is Radio Ragnarok and I'm your host Toby Jenkins. This is a public service broadcast going out on all modulated signals, analog, digital and quantum within 10 kilometers of this COS outpost. The outpost ID is RR171011 and the outpost operator is me, Toby Jenkins. The outpost coordinates can be obtained with this signal. The outpost is equipped with provisions and medical supplies and has a security rating of 22.232%. The doors are open to the light. The sun is on the horizon. Absurdity. Noun. A statement of belief manifestly consistent with one's own opinion. Accord. Noun. Harmony. Accordion. Noun. An instrument in harmony with the sentiments of an assassin. 
The table stood in the middle of what appeared to be an endless floor. It was small and square, with a single chair on either side. Both the chairs and the table were made of mahogany and painted with a white paint that seemed to shine from within with an odd light that appeared to change color when viewed from different angles. Though the light was not bright, it contained a certain magnificence that made the table strangely magnetic. The floor, if you could call it that, was black, the sort of black that seems to have an endless depth to it. Were it not for the fact that its surface had a polished sheen that reflected the table and chairs, the floor could easily deceive a man into thinking that he was somehow standing over an infinite abyss. With the exception of the table, there was only darkness, pressing in from all sides and extending beyond even the floor. Two men approached the table from either side. The first carried a lantern, which gave off the same kind of light as the table, but brighter. His hair was as white as an Antarctic wasteland on a summer morning, and it fell past his shoulders in an untamed, or rather untamable, fashion. Though he was old, he stood tall and walked, barefoot, with a sense of purpose at precisely the pace he intended. In fact, the only things that betrayed his age were his hair and the deep lines etched into his face. His eyes, which were a piercing blue akin to the waters of a Pacific island lagoon, defied the age of his face with a life that no man, indeed no child, could ever know. He wore a loose, white, short-sleeved shirt, white knee-length shorts, and a black leather belt with a simple silver buckle. Over his shoulder he carried a brown sling bag, and on his head sat a beautiful Panama hat. Although the light from the lantern masked it, the man in white's clothes shone with the same light as the table and the lantern. The second man came from the shadows, only becoming visible in the light of the table, and later the lantern. He wore a full-length black suit with a red shirt and a black tie. His leather shoes were polished to a shine and his sterling silver cufflinks gleamed and where one would usually find a corsage they set a single red rose. His face, neither young nor old, was handsome and proud with chiseled features and a perfectly trimmed black goatee. His black hair was slicked back under a black felt bowler hat which he wore tipped slightly forward and to the left. His eyes were keen and dark, augmenting the cocky air with which this man carried himself. The only thing he carried was a black umbrella with a silver point at one end and a handle shaped like the head of a snake at the other. Upon reaching the table, the two men stood at opposite ends, looking at each other, not saying a word, each man sizing the other up. The man in black found that he could not hold the steady gaze. 
of the man opposite him. He repeatedly looked away and examined the man in white's clothes and face, avoiding those blue eyes as much as he could. After a moment of solemnly contemplating the man in black, the man in white motioned to him to take a seat. As the man in black sat down, the man in white raised the lantern over the center of the table and let go, leaving it suspended in midair, about three feet above the table. After this, the man in white took his bag off his shoulder, placed it on the floor beside his chair, and sat down opposite the man in black. The man in black took off his hat and placed it at the corner nearest him, on his left, while the man in white sat back and continued to consider him thoughtfully, with one arm folded and one hand stroking his chin, and his head tilted ever so slightly to the right. The man in black also leaned back, looking out into the blackness all around him. He began to grow impatient and started drumming his fingers on the table. After a while, the man in black looked at the man in white with a look that said plainly, Well, can we begin already? The man in white reached down, rummaged in his bag for a short while, and came up with two paintbrushes and a small jar of paint in one hand. He placed the brushes on the table. One was thin and sharp, the kind that is used to paint in the details on miniatures. The other was much wider, and the bristles were cut straight across, perpendicular to the shaft. While the brushes were ordinary in every way, the paint was not. It was as thin as water, and yet looked, for all intents and purposes, as thick as mud. Its movement was peculiar as well. It swirled randomly inside the jar, moving to its own constantly changing rhythm, and if tipped, it could rush out and drench everything, dribble out like custard, or not move at all. The most remarkable aspect of this paint, though, was its color. Impossible to describe because the paint, whilst in the jar, had the potential to be any color and any shade that the painter wanted it to be. The man in white opened the jar and placed it on the table. It shone with the light of the lantern and the table and the man in white. But it didn't blend in. The man in white picked up the thinner of the two brushes and began to paint. The man in white started by painting a thin square border in the center of the table in bright and glistening gold. His hand was steadier than many painters wish their hands could be, and his movements were quick and confident. As soon as the paintbrush touched the table, tiny flecks of light burst out of the lantern and rushed out into the darkness until they came to their intended positions and stopped. By the time the third side of the square had been painted, the darkness had become a sky dotted with countless stars, which were reflected by the seemingly endless floor. As the man in white began the fourth side, a large orb of bright golden light, like the paint of the square, and a smaller orb of silvery blue light proceeded from opposite ends of the lantern, 
going out in opposite directions toward the horizon. As the square was finished, the orbs came to rest for a moment at the floor's edge before beginning to move vertically, the silver orb rising and the golden orb falling as if connected by an invisible thread to the table. Eventually, the orbs slowed to the point that they appeared to be deceptively still. The silver orb hovered miles away, directly above the table, and the golden orb lay far below them, beneath the floor. The man in black never once seemed surprised or astonished at the events taking place around him. In fact, he never seemed to notice. He simply sat and watched the man in white with his arms folded, looking increasingly bored and unimpressed. The man in white switched brushes and began to fill in the square. This time, the paint was the color and texture of varnished oak. As soon as he had finished the first coat, he began a second, raising the painted area a fraction above the surface of the table. He continued this process until there was a varnished oak platform in the center of the table. While he was painting, a great number of things began to happen, all to the rhythm of his brush strokes. First, water gushed out from under the tables and chairs, spreading out in every direction, turning the floor to water as it went, until the two men were seated at a table in the middle of a vast ocean. The man in black was disgusted when his pristine shoes and naturally his socks as well were properly soaked in the sudden deluge. The man in white smiled, laughing to himself without looking up, while his bare feet played out in the cool water. After this, land sprung up from the depths, rising to hills and mountains in places, settling to plateaus and valleys in others, creating an exciting, albeit barren, landscape. The man in black was glad to have somewhere solid to put his feet, but found, to his horror, that his waterlogged shoes had turned the ground to mud, further ruining his once beautiful footwear. Finally, thick, rich, green grass exploded out from under the table and spread out over the land. As the sun rose over the eastern horizon, which was to the man in white's right, Trees and flowers and plants of all kinds shot up from the ground and formed forests, plains, gardens, and meadows. Once the platform was completed, the man in white sat back for a moment and breathed, and then set to work, painting eight rows of eight alternating black and white squares, while the man in black, now thoroughly bored, lit a cigarette and continued to watch the man in white. The black squares were the same black as the floor had been, and the white squares were the same white that the table was. As he painted, creatures of every sort, birds, insects, mammals, reptiles, fish, and others, all came into existence as if formed out of clouds of dust. As soon as the last square was painted, a mighty wind rushed out from the table, sending the man in black's favorite hat flying off 
into the distance. When it ceased, everything from the blade of grass to the elephant came suddenly and joyously to life. And in the center of the table, where once there was nothing, stood a magnificent oak chessboard. The man in white sat back, looked around at his work, breathed the fresh air in deep, and smiled. He was very pleased. The man in black was the polar opposite. His shoes were ruined, his socks were still sopping wet, his hat had been blown into the middle of who knows where. Actually, it had landed perfectly on the head of a rather lucky and very surprised gorilla. And on top of all this, he was sick and tired of waiting around for this old coot opposite him to finish. After a while, the man in white reached down and picked up his bag and pulled out 32 solid gold chess pieces, placing them one by one on the table before him. He put the bag down again and picked up the thin brush and one of the two kings that were on the table. He dipped the brush in the paint and touched the tip of the king's crown with it. The king turned from gold to white instantly. He placed the king on its appropriate square, which was the black square closest to the middle on his side of the chessboard, and picked up the other king. Again, he touched the tip of the king's crown with the paintbrush, but this time it turned black. After placing it on its square, the man in white closed the jar of paint and put it and the paintbrushes back into his bag. He then proceeded to divide up the remaining pieces between himself and the man in black. The two of them then placed the pieces on the board. As soon as a piece was placed, it changed from gold to either black or white, depending on which side it was on. During this, villages, towns and cities sprang up, were populated and developed each time a piece was placed. At long last, the game was set to begin. The man in white moved first. He moved the pawn in front of his queen two squares forward, halfway across the board. As the pawn moved, an army assembled on a hill about half a mile behind the man in white. The man in black mimicked this move, placing his pawn on the square diagonally opposite the white pawn. This move, too, brought an army which assembled on the hill behind the man in black, facing the army across the plain, in which the two men sat, playing chess. The man in white took the black pawn. And as he did so, the two armies charged down into the plain with a roar and clashed suddenly and violently all around the two men, who took no notice of this and continued playing chess. When the battle was over, the army that was behind the man in white stood victorious, dancing over the corpses of their fallen adversaries. Not one man in the opposing army had survived. The man in black smiled. He knew what was coming. As soon as the pawn had been set down past the halfway line of the board, 
it changed from white to black, and as it did so, the army set off to pillage, plunder, and utterly destroy the city of their enemies. The man in white was not surprised or affronted. He knew that this was the nature of this particular game of chess. Each piece, once it crossed over to the other side of the board, would change its allegiance and turn from white to black, and vice versa. And the game continued, each move bringing a larger force, producing a more violent, more devastating battle, and continuing an increasingly terrible war. The man in white played aggressively, taking pieces wherever and whenever he could, until he had effectively removed half of the man in black's pieces. The man in black had a different strategy, it appeared. He kept his forces back, never allowing them to cross over to the other side, thus luring the man in white's forces over to his side. Simply put, every time the man in white took one of the man in black's pieces, he replaced it with his own. The man in black grew ever more confident, and when he obtained an extra queen at the expense of a pawn, he even chuckled smugly to himself. Eventually, though he had removed three quarters of the man in black's pieces, the man in white was left with only his king. The man in black moved confidently. He had been orchestrating this from the start. One of his queens prevented the man in white's king from moving left. He moved his rook one square away from the queen, blocking any passage to the right, and an empire was born. The man in white could only move his king forward. The man in black moved his bishop. Check. The empire expanded. Forward again. The other bishop was moved. Check. The known world was conquered. The man in black let out a cold, malicious laugh. The man in white's king stood on the edge of the halfway line. It could not be moved back. The man in white knew what his next move had to be. He sat and stared at the solitary white piece for some time before he slowly moved it forward across the halfway line. The king turned black. The man in black began to rise off his seat in victory, but stopped when the man in white raised his hand. The man in white had not taken his eyes off the king since he had moved it, and it was clear that he was waiting for something. Reluctantly, the man in black sat down again and looked at the once white king. All of a sudden, a trickle of red paint started to run down from the point where the man in white had touched it with the paintbrush, way back at the beginning. It trickled down onto the board itself, splitting into smaller streams as it went. 
Each stream found its way to a chess piece and circled up to the top of the piece. As soon as a stream reached the top, the piece changed color and allegiance once again to white. And the stream retracted back to its source. And as the stream traveled back up, the once white king to its point of origin, the king too was transformed from black to white. When this had finished, the only black piece left on the board was the man in black's king, which was now outflanked on all sides by the newly white pieces. And the man in white smiled. The man in black had forgotten what made the pieces change allegiance. It was not a property of the board, but the presence of a king that held sway over the pieces. The man in white looked up at the man in black and winked. Checkmate. Achievement. Noun. The death of endeavor and the birth of disgust. Adder. Noun. A species of snake, so called from its habit of adding funeral outlays to the other expenses of living. Balanced all, brought all to my 
years to come to see Waste of breath, waste of breath Years behind in balance with this life This death Admiral, noun that part of a warship which does the talking while the figurehead does the thinking. This episode of Radio Ragnarok featured the story Polemos by Your Nomad Soul, read by the author, and the songs An Irish Airman Foresees His Death by W.B. Yeats, performed by Your Nomad Soul, and Maiga Decente a Cheval by Lesasso. There were also excerpts from the Devil's Dictionary by Ambrose Bierce, read by Your Nomad Soul. All content in this broadcast is public domain, with the exception of Maiga Decente a Cheval by Lesasso, which has been reproduced here under the Arte Libre license. Thank you very much for listening and be safe out there. This is Toby Jenkins signing off.